you have your Bible this morning, I would love to, uh, for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 34 this morning. And as you turn there, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, the question is, what is love? I was tempted to come up to the stage today with Hathaway's hit, you know, what is love, baby? Don't, but uh, it didn't seem fitting. And it's honestly a question that we've been asking longer than 1993. Uh, my favorite Thing to do with these kind of high-profile questions uh, is to ask kids and see what insights they can give us. I looked up a few this week. Uh, five-year-old Kyle said that love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Uh, Mark, age six, says love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. Uh, Justin, seven years old, says love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Uh, that kid has got some insight. Uh, I asked my boys what they thought. Chandler said, uh, it's goodness and kindness and all the other nisses. Uh, and Brannigan said, could you leave me alone for a few minutes? Yeah, just <laughs> feeling the love on that one. Uh, but today we get to look at Jesus' definition of love. And I've mentioned, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, as we've continued through this Kingdom Come series, uh, looking at Jesus' kingdom and how it's defined uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. I mentioned the last couple of weeks that he has been heading ever closer to Jerusalem, which of course we know means ever closer to the cross. And so as we come to Matthew 22 this morning, Jesus has finally reached Jerusalem, and the religious leaders are beginning to question him in order to try to trap him with his responses, kind of trying to pave the way uh, for the, their case against him that they will ultimately bring, uh, which will bring him to the cross. The Pharisees, one of the religious groups of the day, begins questioning Jesus to try to trap him uh, politically. They ask him questions about should they pay taxes or not. The Sadducees, kind of the, the competing religious group, uh, steps up after he answers the Pharisees, and they try to tap, trap Jesus theologically. And so Jesus stumps them as well. So the Pharisees decide to take one more stab at it by kind of putting forth one of their champions to trap him on, let's say, a technicality. And it's there we pick up in verse 34. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Before we look at Jesus' response to the question, I want to look at the questioner for just a minute. Uh, Matthew tells us that this is an expert in the law that comes to ask this question. Uh, sometimes you'll see them called teachers of the law. What this man was is kind of a legal professional, a lawyer of sorts, which was kind of a unique position back then. Often we'll see them described, maybe in another translation, called scribes. Uh, these were men who would start out as copyists. They, of course, didn't have printing presses then. To, so to make their, their Bibles, they would get scrolls, and they would have to be copied letter by letter, word by word, by hand. And so as a scribe, as you begin to write this over and over and over, you begin to, to memorize it. You begin to see connections between this part over here and this passage over here. You begin to interpret it in light of these things that you are seeing and apply it in different ways. And so it's kind of like a, a teacher who's been teaching the same grade level for a long, long time. You, you kind of know the feeling you could teach that lesson in your sleep, which my wife as a sleep talker has done before, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, but this role kind of began to morph over time. 
Uh, these scribes begin to become judges and, se- and settling the civil disputes. I mean, who better to judge by the law than the guy who had memorized the law? But a quick perusal through the law would show you that there is a lot to be studied. Some estimate as many as 613 different laws are represented in the Old Testament and rabbinic traditions. The, the do this and the don't do this and all the other oral traditions by hundreds of rabbis over hundreds of years. And so the scribe, this, this lawyer, comes to Jesus and he has this question of which of all of these is the greatest. He's crossed all the T's, he's dotted all the I's, and he knows the intricacies and nuances that are there to all of these laws and his rules. And yet this question is not an honest one. I, I say it's a trap because it seems like any way Jesus answers, someone's going to be offended. I, I know we can't imagine people getting offended like that in our culture, but it would have been that way then. Because everyone has kind of their angle, their, their pet project. No matter how Jesus answers, the, the, the first century Karens are going to come flying out of the woodwork. And so if he, highlights Jesus, if he highlights God's holiness, then they'll call him light on mercy. If he highlights mercy, they'll nail him on obedience. But Jesus has shown himself to be incredibly adept at answering their questions in profound ways that often leave them speechless. And so you expect in this moment for Jesus to answer, just to kind of knock your socks off with this powerful new insight. I mean, he's already said in chapter 5 that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and so maybe he ties this back to him and to his kingship. And so we approach this almost with this idea, this attitude of, okay, lay it on me, Jesus. But Jesus' answer is surprisingly unsurprising. Unlike so many of his other teachings, this one is remarkably unoriginal. And I say that because of two reasons. The first is that this would have been the expected answer. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, Jesus asks a teacher of the law, one of these scribes, kind of the role is reversed. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers the same way Jesus does here in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the fact that we see the same man, or a different man, give the same answer indicates this was kind of a formulaic response. But the other way it was unoriginal is that this was an extremely common verse. Jesus here, talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was called the Shema. It's kind of like John 3.16 of the Old Testament. They would have prayed this twice daily at the beginning and end of each day. They would open synagogue services on Friday evenings with this prayer, with this verse. They would have had it written on tiny little scrolls and put in boxes on their doorposts and on their arms and their foreheads. This was a verse that was known by every Jewish person. And so it seems kind of striking that most of the time when Jesus has such complex, thought-provoking answers, he responds so simply. But I don't think it needs to be complex because I think the greatest commandment is also the simplest commandment. What it means to love God and to love others should not be complex as it comes to us living that out. Jesus doesn't stop with just loving God. He doesn't just answer the lawyer's question, though. He goes beyond. He gives not only the greatest commandment, but the second one is an implication of it. He says, if you want to love God, then you have to love people. John, following Jesus' teaching this way, says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. But here's the thing. We all know that people 
this is going to be shocking, can be difficult. People can be hard to love. They can be selfish and snobbish and arrogant. They can have bad attitudes, be unapologetic and rude. And for some people, those are their best qualities. But Jesus says, care for your neighbor as you care for yourself. All that time that you put into making sure that your needs are met, put that same time and attention and energy into making sure others' needs are met as well. I remember a few years ago, uh, before we had kids of our own, Kelsey and I went to a birthday party of uh, some family friends. Uh, it was their son's birthday, the little kid, typical little kid birthday. And as we were leaving, uh, his mom was always stuck with me. She said, thank you for loving my kids. And I thought that was kind of a weird response. Why did she say thank you for loving my kids, not thank you for loving me? But when I realized that after having kids, sometimes the best way to love someone is to love their children. Love for someone's children is sometimes the greatest way of showing them love. And in the same way, biblically speaking, loving God's children is one of the greatest ways of showing our love for God. If we are not loving and serving the people around us, then we are not loving and serving the God who made us. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. When we love people, we love God. And when we love God, we fulfill the greatest commandment he ever gave us to follow. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves to truly understand how to love. We have to come back to that first question I asked, what is love? We tend to think, I think, of love in, in terms of a, a Valentine's Day. You know, the, the butterflies and the, summer, the, the fireworks going off, the, the roses. The, we think of love as how we feel about people. But in a biblical sense, love is not about feeling, but it's about serving. It's about how we act toward people, not how we necessarily feel about them in any given moment. We are, as a culture, inundated day after day with subtle messages that love is only an emotion. That it's something that you can fall into and out of, and when you fall out of it, it's easy to discard it and disregard it. But biblically... We see that to love is to serve. We see this further complicated, though, by the ways that we use love. I can say I love my wife, and I love my job, and I love tacos, and hopefully not all of those loves are on the same level. But in a biblical sense, to love is to be accompanied by action. Love without action is no love at all. Our love for God is not a simple emotion, not about how we feel, but how we serve him and worship him and serve others in response. When we understand love in this way, I think it begins to revolutionize the ways that we love. Love has an emotional component, yes, but it's so much more than that. Love is this unconditional regard for a person regardless of how you feel about them. You can't always help how you feel, but you can control the way that you act. And that makes it possible to love one another whether we feel like it or not. And this becomes very applicable just to even our closest relationships, you know, with our our spouses. And the one that you married many years ago and your head over heels for 364 days of the year, but on that one day he's being a jerk or she's driving you crazy. I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, Kelsey. And yet you love them anyway. Or your children, the the little anti-Roombas that roam around your house making messes wherever they go. 
And they barge in on you in the bathroom and they push your buttons and they cause you grief and, and they do all the things you've told them not to do a thousand times. And just when you're beginning to look up at how much they might go for on eBay, they crawl into your lap and say, I love you. You know the one, you probably had one. And let's not get started on teenagers. You know, you, we love them anyway. Maybe for you, it's a boss or a coworker or a client or a customer, or a nosy neighbor or a child's teacher, whoever it is, we are called, regardless of how we feel about them, to love them anyway. I think it's interesting when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he doesn't define it. He doesn't go into long points of application, say this is what it looks like, this is how you do it. Because I think by quoting Leviticus 19.18, he doesn't have to. Leviticus 19, the entire chapter that he quotes, does it for him. We see things like respect your parents, provide for the poor in your community, deal honestly with one another, don't, don't steal, don't defraud, don't rip one another off. Speak with truth and clarity, care for the physically and mentally challenged, be just to all mankind, respect your elders, be hospitable to strangers and immigrants. You see, we demonstrate our love for God by living out His love for those around us. But we can't just leave love to simple exposition or description. To, to leave love here as an explanation is, I think, to do it a great disservice. You see, hearing a sermon on love without actually going and living it out is as impactful as lead, reading a love letter written to somebody else. So when we talk about this commandment of love, if it doesn't lead us to be more loving, then we're really missing the point. And so I think we have to ask ourselves deeply, introspectively, this question of how are we loving? Whom are we serving? Are we loving and serving God? Are we loving and serving others? Now, I know in some sense I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, because if you hadn't experienced God's love at some point, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. We became Christians because we experienced a need for God's grace and love, and we loved Him in return. But sometimes along the way, it's easier to set up kind of systems of living out uh, our own goodness, our own standards, than it is to live out the love that we've been called to live out. Somewhere along the line, you probably establish an indicator of our love that makes us feel good, makes us look good, but it's taken the place of genuine love. Maybe it's the way that we behave. Maybe it's the ways that we act. We, we want to look like a, a really good Christian, and so we follow all the right rules and do all the right things, but if we don't love God and we don't love His people, then that behavior isn't much more than self-piety. And without a loving relationship with Jesus, all of that obedience will eventually and ultimately fall short. Maybe it's the ways that we uh, commit and, and, and align our commitments, measure our commitments. You know, I'm going to commit to be in church every single week. No vacations, no work. My family is going to be there every single time the doors are open. And God loves a heart that's present for worship. But if we don't love God and love his people, and our heart is not growing in response to his word, then it all adds up to just a butt and a seat. Maybe for us, it's the good life, that we measure our, our love by the things that we feel God blesses us with. I do what God wants, and so I can be blessed. We've got kind of this quid pro quo thing going on here, and the fact that I am living such a blessed life means I must be doing things right. I do all the right things, and God gives me the good life. But we see in Scripture that God is much more 
focus on how we live the devoted life and the good life. What Jesus is telling us with these two commandments is that love should be our greatest motivation, our ultimate goal. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I'm just making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move the mountains, in other words, if I can do great things but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. This is why Jesus makes love the ultimate commandment. Because if we have love, then everything else follows. But if we don't have love, then nothing else matters. Of course, the good news of this morning is that our love toward God is not just a one-way street. He's the reason for it all, the reason that we love to begin with. First John 4 says we love because he first loved us. We know what love is because God himself came and paid for our sin with his own death, that we might be able to freely love and return. And if God can do that for us, what can we not do for one another? What would we withhold and not give back to him? What, what excuse might we have to refrain from showing our love to God and to others by the ways that we act, even when we don't feel like it? And I think this is especially important now, today, in the culture in which we live. I think especially if we, as we live in this, this increasingly divisive and difficult world, especially over the last few years, as things have shifted, there's been kind of this paradigm shift. I think people are looking to the church to see if we're truly serious about what we say we're serious about. I think people are looking to see if the church has really been about gathering in a building or about being his, you don't have to wait till the end of the month, hands and feet, wherever we are. I think people are looking to the church to see if it's really just been about singing songs and listening to sermons or about being agents of kingdom change in our communities. I think people are looking at the church to see if the faith that we've proclaimed has been real or it will buckle under pressure. I think people are looking at the church to see if it's been about maintaining a social club or it's been a boot camp that prepares us to storm into the world when things are at their worst, to love to our very best. So I simply this morning want to encourage you to love. A love that is not defined by how we feel, not defined by emotions and fuzzy feelings, but defined by action done in service to our King. To encourage you to love in the ways that you serve sacrificially and lead courageously and hope expectantly. Let our greatest motivation for loving God by loving His people always be that we have experienced the cross, the greatest love of all. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we do so knowing that you are a good and loving God, that you are a good and loving Father, and that Jesus, you came as a good and loving King. For all of these reasons rooted in who you are, God, we ask that you would make us to be more loving people. 
not loving in how we feel about one another, though hopefully we feel favorably toward one another, but in the ways that we act, in the ways that we live it out. Even amongst the people that can drive us crazy or, or, or we serve in a way that doesn't benefit us in any way, that we could pour out your love as you've done for us on the cross. Jesus, we pray that as citizens of your kingdom, we would look to you, our king, as a defining example of how we live out life in your kingdom. And we know that you are a king of love. And so God, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that we would look for opportunities to serve sacrificially, and in so doing, love others. That our reflection of loving others would lead to our love for you, God. As we worship you and we serve you, and we study more about you, all of those are for the benefit of knowing you more and loving you in greater and deeper ways. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who demonstrated his love for us by going to the cross in our place and shows us the way to live loving others selflessly and sacrificially. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us and for being our good and gracious king. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.